And the founder asked, well, don't I need to patch the hole? It depends on the size of the hole. You know, is this something that's really going to slow you down? Is this something that you're going to fill up with water? And it's so major that if you don't patch that hole, no matter how much wind is in the sails, you're going to stay. You're going to drown. Greetings, and you're listening to the series, A Chat with the CEO on the Breakthrough channel. I'm your host, Kaustub Hanantkar, the CEO of Breakthrough. And we have with us today, Lisa Mikkelsen, the Global Human Capital Head for Flourish Ventures, a venture firm that's committed to investing in innovations that help people achieve financial health and prosperity. Lisa leads people operations for Flourish and helps their portfolio companies align the business strategy with their human strategy. She's worked with the Omedia Network for eight years before joining Flourish Venture in her current role. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. Before we start, I just want to point out one quick thing is in all our conversations in the past, you have been so vocal about the need for startup leadership and even the investors to focus on behaviors and development of the promoters and the founders. It's something I strongly endorse and believe in. So I'm really, really excited for our chat. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor to be here today. So let's just jump right into it. You have a very unique role as a human capital head for Flourish Ventures. One is you get to work across all geographies. You get to work with investors and you get to work with the founders and portfolio companies. That's a very unique space. I'm curious to hear what has your experience been working in that space? I got to say it's been absolutely incredible and also very humbling. I think there are so Mm -hmm. many talented entrepreneurs out there and companies that are solving unique challenges in really innovative ways. And people are just putting so much of their lives into the commitments that they've made for improving financial health, improving financial well-being and inclusion. So it's thrilling to be able to see what's happening all over the world and in different types of companies related to financial innovation. And as a human capital professional, I think one piece that's been fascinating for me to observe is the fact that there are so many similarities in terms of what's happening inside these companies, regardless of location, regardless of stage, regardless of sector. So we see a lot of themes, and I think that's one of the joys of being able to have this kind of bird's eye view. That's so interesting. If I may just spend a little bit more time on it, you said that you observe similarities and certain patterns that exist across all different firms, irrespective of what stage they're in, what geographic location they're in. What are some of the common elements that you have observed? Yeah, absolutely. So just from the get-go, companies want to hire great talent and companies Mm. struggle hiring great talent. Recruiting is always a challenge in so many places, in so many organizations, even successful startups. So there's always this kind of constant war for talent out there. There's the second theme that I see a lot of is how do you grow employees? How do you grow your talent? Mm -hmm. Once you have a great team, well, what do you do with them? How do you keep them engaged? How do you keep them motivated and excited about the work that they're doing? And then another theme is sort of the whole scaling process as you're growing and thinking about what do we need to do as an organization? What do we need to do to upskill ourselves as founders, as leaders, becoming better managers, helping to inspire people, Mm. communicating better, improving feedback, both giving and receiving. So many of the themes that I notice in working with so many different companies, we really try to create opportunities to dig into those themes Mm -hmm. at a network level where we're bringing companies together and saying, hey, let's let's double click here. Let's talk about resilience during the pandemic and how challenging this is for organizations as well as people 
who are just trying to live their lives and, and do their jobs yeah. and take care of their families and themselves. So it's really sort of humanizing the work that we're doing. It's a very tricky space to be in, a tricky role to play. When we look at it from an investor perspective, effectively as an investor, you have given the firm the role of custodian of a certain amount of wealth or money or resources. And you mentioned about the pandemic right now. Like I would imagine your role to have come into the forefront during this pandemic, because a lot of it this time has been about people. When we look at it from the perspective of safety, when we look at it from the perspective of how even companies have managed their human resources. What was your experience like during the season? <laughs> Yeah, well, your uh, intuition is absolutely correct. There has been just such a huge need for human capital support um, in these past mm -hmm. six months. And what I have noticed is that the needs have sort of shifted in the various months. So it, it started out at the get-go of the pandemic. There was a lot of challenge around difficult conversations. You know, companies were having to make difficult decisions around their staff and cutting pay, letting people go, and still continuing to inspire. So we had a lot of conversations around, you know, continuing morale, also the challenges of working from home, what that looks like in different environments where, let's face it, most people in the world have not been set up for virtual work prior to the spring of 2020. And then the other area where we've tried to be really supportive is around mental health. And mental health has just jumped into focus this year. And I think in a way, very positively, because there's always mm -hmm. been a stigma around mental health. And now it's sort of becoming the norm to realize, wow, we actually have to take care of ourselves. And there's no shame in that. So a lot of our support has turned to things like providing resources, whether mm -hmm. that's subsidies for different services like coaching, executive coaching is really important right now. Getting CEOs, for instance, together to talk about some of their challenges and share with each mm -hmm. other, because if we're not talking about things, then we don't really process them in a healthy way. Definitely. Some of the other things we're doing have been around offering coursework and workshops around resilience and communication and giving people, not only the executives, but a lot of the middle managers and other individuals on the team, some tools for how to address mm -hmm. the challenges they're facing. And then I'm also seeing this pattern where companies are now starting to get on the other side of a lot of their initial challenges. People are sort of settling into their routines, working from home. And now the challenges are more around rebuilding. So companies are starting yeah. to ask about values like, wow, what, what are our values and how can we express mm -hmm. those and come from a place of working with those? And what about managing mm -hmm. people so that we can continue to keep the momentum through this time where we really don't know when it's going to end? So as an investor, as somebody who supports the companies, we always walk a bit of a fine line between wanting to be too directive, but also being helpful. So we never want to push yeah say, you've got to do this, but rather, Hey, you know, here's some resources for you. We think could be helpful. And Hey, let's have a conversation yeah. about it and sort of normalizing that it's not because you're not a successful company. It's because this is what's mm -hmm. happening everywhere. And let's talk about it and let's find ways to kind of support you. That's going to be most effective for your needs. Just continuing with the same conversation. Do you think that going forward from the current popular terminology, the new norm, as we go into this, do you feel like the role of a human capital professional in startups, essentially, do you think it's going to change or do you think it has already evolved? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a great question. I think both. So for mm -hmm. starters, it has evolved a lot. And I'll tell you, when I started 20 years ago in HR, my role was very mm -hmm. tactical. It was very much focused around compliance and personnel. Mm -hmm. 
air quotes was yeah. the term that we used. And that has really shifted to a more strategic function in the last decade as companies have realized, wow, people actually are our greatest resource. Mm -hmm. And as we've had big companies, love them or hate them, but the Googles of the world who have really kind of driven home, I think, some of the notions of people first and created more a competitive market out there for talent in a way that's in service for the talent itself. So HR's role is now less of the sort of records keeper, and it's much more of creative thinker. You know, how are we engaging people? How are we continuing to give people opportunities to grow? What do we need to do to improve our culture, make this a more exciting place to work, attract new, new people? And I think in the future, we'll continue to see more of that, but I think at deeper level. I think at much less of the surface level that maybe we've seen in the last few years around, you know, it's not all about things like the free meals or the happy mm -hmm. hours. That yeah. just doesn't happen right now. And we don't have these cool office spaces that we can go into. I mean, as you well know from your organization, yeah. we're no longer gathering in these spaces anymore. So what's going to intrigue people, what's going to engage people and the types of resources that people want are going to look a lot different. So HR is going to have to be thinking of what that looks like, whether that's work-life balance, mental health, financial resources, just a change in some of the content of what's being focused on. How does this vary from an investor's perspective, from an investment firm's perspective? Because in my conversation with quite a few of the funds, it has come to the forefront where they suddenly are like saying, okay, we need people who have some expertise with human capital supporting us. How do you see that changing? Yeah. You know, I used to say, if you have 40 employees, you need an HR person. These days I say, if you have 25 people, maybe even less, wow. you need an HR person. And that HR person again, looks different than what they looked like years ago. And it doesn't need mm -hmm. to be somebody with 30 years of experience, or it could be somebody with 30 years of experience. But the point is, there's a lot more involvement in the employee life cycle and what's happening in the yeah. employee experience. So there's a lot more work at that level. And it's simply not manageable for an executive team, a CEO mm -hmm. and a COO and a CTO to fit in the type of work that needs to be done. I'm not saying they should be removed from it. On the contrary, they should absolutely be a big part of it and a big part of mm -hmm. especially the strategic and kind of philosophical decisions about how you're going to build your company. But from yeah. an investor perspective, we want to know things like, you know, is there good working relationships within companies? Are there good mm -hmm. processes for people who, you know, might want to surface complaints. I mean, look, we just, we're still in this kind of me too era and there's still a lot going mm -hmm. on around diversity and inclusion and equity. So those may be things that could be potential risks when you look at investing yeah. in a company. So there's from the risk perspective, but there's also from the growth perspective, how are you going to get where you need to go? If you don't have a team that's going to be fully engaged. So I think there's a lot of elements where investors are looking to have questions answered that are about people. Yeah. I think that's something very interesting that you just mentioned, like, cause I know we had a conversation about the whole insight, the behavior analytics that we've been talking about last couple of conversations. And I was actually on a conversation with a PE fund very recently, and they were talking about it in terms of how the analytics from a behavioral space is a goldmine that firms are beginning to explore now. In the past, we've had the financial due diligence, the legal due diligence, track records, and I think we've got firms even analyzing social medias of uh, the promoters, but it still doesn't tell us if there is potentially going to be tension between two people on the leadership team or <laughs> different behaviors that they demonstrate. And you're right in saying, there are more funds that are now saying, hey, I think we need to approach this a little bit more intentionally. One of the funds we work with, we work for a portfolio company and uh, 
the investment was designed or was meant for scaling. And when we came in, like things were taking their own time, like they were not moving fast enough. When we did analysis, we, what we found is the collective behavior that the leadership team demonstrated was lower on the urgency and the intensity part of it. So as a result, there was a little bit more of a leisurely attitude that might creep in as compared to what the investor's perspective was. And how would this translate or impact startup or a company that is getting the investment? You know, all these kind of analysis, even investors asking some of the difficult questions or getting more professionals involved in just understanding who they're investing into. How do you think the promoters or the portfolio companies might respond to this? What's your experience been like? Yeah, I mean, there's kind of a lot of different dynamics to unpack there. I mean, I think one is just simply having more conversations around people and around how organizations you know, think about their culture, what's the intention for their culture, what are their values, how do people interact, how are decisions made. So cultural questions, even if they can't be answered by founders, they provide insight into how founders are thinking about long-term growth of an organization. Mm -hmm. And they also give you insight into the growth mindset of a leader and yeah. what kinds of things they're focused on and whether or not they have a high degree of emotional intelligence and sort of their own kind of observations and awareness of what has been brewing within the, the organization that they're building. So I think even if you don't have a formal process for that, just bringing it into the conversation can reveal a lot of really kind of helpful information. I think to take it a step further, there are now more cultural assessments out there that mm -hmm. investors can utilize to be much more consistent about how they're evaluating companies and their culture and some of the sort of intangible aspects that we don't always know how to describe, but we might sort of draw on our own gut feeling about, mm -hmm. oh, well, you know, this is, this is what I think. And, and gut feelings yeah. are another way of saying bias, right? Having a sort of unconscious bias. So we might tend to like a team that is a little bit more like us, or we might mm -hmm. tend to believe in a team that sort of looks and acts similar to that other unicorn that was invested in. And as investors, while they do their absolute best to be objective and really kind of quantify the different elements and risk to making a decision, some of these human elements are really hard to be objective about. So mm -hmm. if you don't have some sort of guide or framework or consistent way to look across the companies that you're investing in and know sort of ahead of time, what are the things that are important to us as an organization, as an investor? You know, Flourish, we focus on entrepreneurs who are changing financial systems for the better. Mm -hmm. And it's important to us that we are investing in highly ethical and values aligned individuals. So if we don't have some sort of framework or model or tool for identifying, well, what are those behaviors? And will we know mm -hmm. them when we see them? Then we're basically just kind of throwing our hands in the air and leaving it up to our discretion and our, you know, years of experience, right? But that doesn't work if you have somebody who's new to investing or somebody who hasn't worked in an operational capacity before. So I think there's a lot of ways and this, this is continuing to evolve. And I think it's one of the things that is really exciting to me, less as being a deal breaker and making an investment, more about having a better awareness and relationship with a mm -hmm. company that you're about to get involved with. So, you know, yeah. these are going to be the areas we need to dig into. Yep. That you said it really well. I think it's more than a deal breaker. I think it's more about dating, right? Like you get married after having a relatively better idea about the other person than it was when you started. You mentioned something about different assessments, cultural assessments that people are beginning to explore. Would you, can you give a few examples on it? Like what kind of assessments? 
Yeah, so there are a number of different firms, consultancies that are out there that kind of do this work specifically with venture firms and with PE firms. One company that is doing such a thing is called Pop Browser in the US, and they have a questionnaire that is helpful for the investors to use. And the investors get trained on what questions to ask, what observations to make, and then how to assess the answers and how to follow on. So there's that, which is more of a high touch. There's also other types of assessments that are more of a kind of check the box self-assessment that companies can make. And a lot of the HR platforms have these, these types of things or some of the HR research firms like Gartner or McLean. They've also developed such a a culture assessment that companies can take Mm -hmm. independently. And frankly, it's a really positive exercise for everyone involved. This, a lot of companies that I work with post-investment, when they're scaling, this is one of the challenges they have is they say, oh, we have this great culture and we're growing and we want to retain that. And what can we do to keep this culture knowing that things are going to change as we grow? So using tools that are out there around culture assessment and around Mm -hmm. values definition and values change as you grow. I shouldn't say the values change, but the behaviors, the manifested behaviors of those values change as you grow. And so there's often an appetite for understanding what that looks Mm -hmm. like. I'm going to read a quote from Bain put up in their global PE report, which I think ties in really well with what we're talking about. PE executives rank having a strong management team in place ahead of strategy, operational improvement, or macroeconomic factors is the most important factor influencing their portfolio companies. Do you think this has come into more prominence now, especially the post-COVID era? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, look at so many companies out there. If I just think about our portfolio in general, the amount of pivots that we have seen in what we're doing, what companies are doing in the last six months has been remarkable. It really illustrates that point very nicely, I think, because at the end of the day, you might have a winning product, you might have huge market opportunity, but when things change as they do, as they have, as they Mm -hmm. will continue, what are you going to do about it? And if you don't have a team in place that's talented, nimble, agile, thoughtful, then none of your great ideas are going to do much good. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to move the conversation a little bit more towards the founders from the investor space, just to explore that. Everything that you just shared, having a team that's agile, that's nimble, that's driven, that's that's the right amount of aggression, that's the right amount of focus and quality, right amount of focus and criticality. Like it needs somebody who is thinking along those lines. And more often than not, now we have the CEO or the founder and the co-founder and their immediate team whose focus is primarily saying, okay, let's get the product out. Let's debug. Let's acquire more customers. Let's get the next round of funding in. And once the next round of funding in comes in, you suddenly have a new stakeholder was like, hey, I have my agenda that needs to be pushed as well. And you suddenly have like, okay, it's time. We need to get an HR person. And what the HR person's role is, let's get the ex-McKinsey's. Let's get the ex-Google. Let's get the high-profile team that makes it extremely attractive for the next investor to invest in. What do you think stops founders, stops the promoters to look at the human capital role a bit more holistically and a bit more strategically rather than primarily a talent acquisition space? Yeah, I think this kind of varies from company to company and from founder to founder. Mm -hmm. I think, unfortunately, the state, how investing works is tends to be a little bit more short-term focused. Okay, how are we going to reach these targets in the next six months? You need to do this in 12 months. And so you have founders and entrepreneurs who are, they're optimizing for that. So they're looking more short-term, let's fill a gap, let's plug a hole. This needs to be done, Mm -hmm. so let's find somebody who can do it. Um, It Mm -hmm. takes a tremendous amount of discipline and 
oftentimes experience to be able to step back and say, you know, this might yeah. serve us in the short term, but how is this going to work 12, 18, 24 months from now? Mm -hmm. Frankly, most entrepreneurs are just not looking that far ahead. And yeah. sometimes there's a good reason for that, right? They might not have financial runway to do so. But I think when you start to bring in an HR person, ideally that person is going to help the leadership take some things off of their plate. So you have someone who can really implement on some of the more strategic initiatives. So instead of it falling on the CEO's plate, who has to do all the external communications, also manage a large team, and mm -hmm. now it's trying to execute on some of these people initiatives, it really helps free up some bandwidth by having mm -hmm. an HR person. And I think the reality too is having seen a number of startups in high growth mode, I'm certain that I've worked with, worked closely with a couple hundred startups over the last mm -hmm. decade. And there wow. is always a pattern of let's hire early stage, smart, all around athletes who can do a little bit of everything because we need them to do five jobs. <laughs> They're doing a little yeah. of this and a little of that. But inevitably you get to a point of scale and those profiles don't work anymore. You need specialists. Mm -hmm. And so Absolutely. it creates a, a huge tension in the organization where you have to now decide, okay, can our people transition as we grow into these specialists or mm -hmm. do we have to completely start from scratch and rehire and rebuild? Yeah. So when you don't have that foresight that this is what's going to come, it's really a luxury to be able to do that. So I do empathize mm -hmm. for the founders who are kind of more short-term in their thinking. Do you have examples from your experience that where you've seen both the sides play out, where founders have had a short-term focus and have had an impact on how they scale, how they grew? or founders which said, hey, let's take a step back and look at it beyond the 12, 18, 24 months, beyond just the next investment. Like look <laughs> at the vision of why we started in this in the first place and their approach and yeah. the way they have uh, played this out. Yeah, without naming names, um, we have a couple companies in our portfolio whose CEOs are serial entrepreneurs. This is not their first rodeo and they've done this a few mm -hmm. times. And they actually think about talent much differently. They're more opportunistic with talent when they mm -hmm. find somebody who is a high potential, whatever they define as high potential for their organization, they will tend to hire that person, even yeah. if there's not an immediate role or, oh, okay, yeah. this person can be XYZ, which is short term what we need right now. Um, but the majority of companies, including companies that I've been a part of when working in startups, mm -hmm. um, we have had to make pretty dramatic changes, including at the executive level with talent that just was not appropriate oh, yeah. when you grew to a different stage. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to be more specific without naming names, but I, um, <laughs> it's mostly going to be um, the latter is what you see. Yeah, but there's a slightly deeper challenge there, right? Like it's not, while also the fact that helping the CEOs or the promoters become a little bit more aware is one thing, but it's also changing the narrative, changing a certain belief that has existed is that we need to think about the way we think about people, the way we think about human capital. It's a mindset shift more than like saying a need right now. How do you create that? How would you convince a founder or a co-founder to say, hey, listen, you've got to look at this differently mm -hmm. uh, as compared to like just going out and kind of pack your team with the best possible talent or the best brand names there is. You've got to think about this a little differently. How do you create that shift? Yeah, it's a good question because it is a really difficult process. And I think it, it involves debunking certain myths one being the myth that we have to hire somebody who is plug and play, who can hit the ground running. How many times yeah. do you that, right? Somebody that we don't have to train, somebody who doesn't need to get up to speed on anything. 
there's inherently a problem with that. And I'm not saying we don't hire experienced people. What I'm mm -hmm. saying is that ideally when you're hiring someone, you wanna find somebody who matches about 80% of what you're looking for that still has room to grow. And that's much more of a long-term approach. That's what's gonna keep somebody excited. And I try to reframe it to CEOs saying things like, okay, imagine if you were to take your next job doing mm -hmm. what you have already done exactly. How yeah. long would you be there? You probably wouldn't stay very long, right? So if you're thinking about retention and keeping the best team because you don't wanna be a revolving door, you need to be thinking about hiring people who have a bit of a stretch, who have some opportunity mm -hmm. to grow. And it doesn't yeah. mean that your team is gonna to have to dedicate their time to teaching this person because someone with high potential is going to learn a lot on the job and is going to stretch. So I think that's one of the big challenges. I think a second challenge or a second myth to debunk is the, we just need to hire somebody who's a self-starter, who is super ambitious, that will basically manage themselves and, and do everything mm -hmm. on their own. And that's a myth because even if you have the most talented, ambitious, self-starting individuals, the number one reason why people leave jobs globally, ready for it, mm -hmm. is because of their boss, is because of their manager. That's, so if you, I, I agree 100%. <laughs> so if you're underinvesting in your managers and you're not training them to be coaches and to yeah. be motivating and understanding their people and to give feedback and to build relationships, then you go back to the revolving door. So, you know, just to kind of sum up the question, I think it's, there are mindset shifts and it helps to shift those mindsets when you can describe instances that you've seen happen again and again, but also yeah. to provide some tools for how to, you know, it's, we don't want to say like, oh yeah, train your managers and then just sort of drop the conversation and move on. We like to be able to provide resources. Okay, here are some excellent ways to train your managers. Life mm -hmm. Lab Learning, they have a great manager training module that's a week long that has a ton of great content, which is not just for new managers, but it's also for those who have been managing for years. It's a great refresher. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, spoiler alert, the managers also like it too. It's not like a chore <laughs> for them to have to go through it. They welcome yeah, these definitely. learning as well. I'm drawing the conversation back to the founders, right? We've talked about managers. We've talked about helping founders even look at uh, people's strategy differently. Mm -hmm. What about their own development? A lot of these guys have not had experiences built, especially when I looked at the Indian ecosystem, startup ecosystem, they've not had a lot of experience building large teams, managing large teams, or even building large organizations in the past. I mean, of course, you've got the legacy serial entrepreneurs who come with a big brand of themselves, but a lot of them are not. And how do we help them develop? Yeah. Um... How do you help them develop? Let me ask you that <laughs> way. So this is where I love recommending coaches for founders. And we've mm -hmm. got a great group of coaches that we work with, but there's also so many out there. And I think distinguishing the difference between a coach and an advisor. And a lot of times mm. entrepreneurs think, oh yeah, I need a coach. I want somebody to tell me how to do this or mm -hmm. teach me how to do that. As yeah. you know, also coaches are not going to give you the answers. They are not subject yeah. matter experts. They're there to help you question yourself and become the best version of yourself. Always working with a great coach as a starting point to uncover what are your individual opportunities and mm -hmm. gaps and also strengths that you can continue to build. I mean, no founder, no person wants to develop something that they suck at. <laughs> People want to do things that they're good at and do it even better and use those skills mm -hmm. to leverage more learning and growth. So if if you don't have an investor that really serves as that sort of coach for you, it's a great investment to get one. Yeah, that's a great point about coaching. And thank you for sharing that. I do agree that there's, there's a fair amount of 
misconception as to what coaching is. Like just a couple of days ago, I was talking to one founder who was like, yeah, I need a coach. And this exact example that you talked about, you know, and I'm saying, I was like, why, what do you want to achieve? I need some help to get direction or to even like, just to be able to bounce something fast. I said, okay, but what is your expectation from the coaches? I mean, the coach should be able to flag it if I'm going in the right direction, or if I'm going in the wrong direction. So when I was trying to reorient what the conversation of a coach means, he was like, oh no, I think I need a mentor, more like it. It's a great point that you shared. I personally have benefited extensively from having a coach. I've had a coach for most part of my working life, actually, to be honest, in different, different bits and pieces. I really think that a coach can have a lot of benefit, even from how the, the state the company is and whether they're trying to grow, whether they're trying to scale, or especially the fact that we were talking about where a lot of the founders have not had experience in leading companies or building companies or building teams. And I think that's where a coach can be a potential game changer. I want to slowly move the conversation to a different angle. This is something that we have encountered quite extensively when we have worked with both the investors and the founders. I would love to hear your insights on this. Very often there's a misalignment in terms of the expectations. And I would imagine this getting a little bit more complicated when we add more number of investors to the mix. Mm. <laughs> what is your experience been in this, in this whole scenario? Yeah, there are definitely a lot of expectations that investors have of founders and oftentimes varying expectations across mm -hmm. different investors. And I think this kind of comes back to the, the notion of founder development and mm -hmm. what is really critical to focus on. And there are probably two areas that I would highlight and both of them create a bit of tension. So let me explain. I think the first tension is on the spectrum of confidence and vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times investors are going to expect this sort of complete confidence, courageous entrepreneur who yeah. they can back, who they can trust, who they feel is doing the right thing and totally uh, confident in what he or she is doing. And I think sometimes that is at a fault. Because realistically, if we don't allow ourselves vulnerability, if we're not questioning what we're doing, if we're not asking for help, if we're not sharing our struggles, mm -hmm. then we're sort of feeding into this illusion that entrepreneurs should have all the answers. And it tends to backfire. And so yeah. what happens is the entrepreneurs, the, the founders, they don't ask the questions and they go through this silent struggle and then things whittle away. So whether it's the culture starts to erode or a difficult decision isn't made and they continue to go according to plan instead of pivoting because they really think there's this great opportunity, but they don't want to offend or worry their investors. They don't want to lose investor confidence. You hear that yeah. quite as a term, the investor confidence but actually this sort of vulnerability and openness to input and feedback and good ideas is what creates power. There are many really talented founders. I think the second thing is that everyone needs to develop, right? It doesn't yeah. matter if you're Steve Jobs or if you are Elon Musk. I mean, Elon mm -hmm. Musk, he, he actually talks about development and how important it is to continue to better yourself and improve yourself. And this is somebody who we all look at as whether you like his personality or not, he's certainly somebody who's been successful, right? Yeah. I think when it comes to development, we have this false belief that we need to fix the things mm -hmm. that are wrong as opposed to relying on a more strengths-based approach. And building on the things that we're already good at and leveraging those things. And so a lot of times I use the analogy of a sailboat because people will ask, well, shouldn't I be fixing the things that I'm not good at? I mean, isn't it important to focus on the weaknesses instead of the strengths? And I say, well, okay, it depends. Mm -hmm. Imagine if you are in a sailboat and the strengths are basically the wind in your sail. 
and the weaknesses are essentially the hole in the boat. Mm -hmm. And the founder asked, well, don't I need to patch the hole? It depends on the size of the hole. You know, is yeah. this something that's really going to slow you down? Is this something that you're going to fill up with water and it's so major that if you don't patch that hole, no matter how much wind is in the sails, you're going to stay. You're going to drown. Yeah. Yes. It's really a question of what do you need to work on? And I have this great mm -hmm. story of a, a very successful founder. And this is not the only story that goes like this. So some of these ideas might resonate with you, but a founder who really had a particular strength when it came to sales and working directly with customers. And at some point, as the company grows, the founder is expected as the CEO to be out there and, you know, working with investors and taking on a different kind of role. But what he found out was that over time, he lost the motivation to do the work that he had to do as a CEO because he missed that customer interaction. He missed that sales role. And so growing and expanding your scope doesn't need to be following a playbook, a rule book. You don't have to do it according to your investor's plan. Mm -hmm. You need to do what energizes you because energy is the currency of, of success, much more so than being kind of pushed to do what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. I can totally relate to this. We are working with a founder, now the CEO, where like a couple of rounds of funding has come in, the business has grown pretty large and doesn't get to do what he did when it was a 20, 30 member team. And now they're like a 200, 300 member company, like massive uh, presence. And you know, the role is significantly different. And he's, he's having a challenging time, like, you know, making that pivot. I want to go back to the first point that you shared, which is I'm personally very passionate about helping founders, helping entrepreneurs up their vulnerability quotient and ask for help when it's needed. It's an environment, right? It's about creating the safe space. Mm -hmm. And very often there is that superhero mentality or an expectation from the founder, whether the founder puts it on themselves or is just perceived to be put on them. It exists. Mm -hmm. And in that space, how do we help the founders up their vulnerability cushion? How do we allow them to feel? How do we allow them to know that, hey, it's okay. You don't need to be having all the answers. You don't need to have all the answers. Mm -hmm. And it's okay for you to say, hey, I need help on this one. I'm out of my depth. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. This is part of what an investor can do in creating mm -hmm. a safe space and creating psychological safety is the term that is used and making yeah. sure that people feel empowered to ask questions or empowered to make mistakes or take risks. So there's a lot about the environment that is created by the investors that contributes mm -hmm. to that. But then what founders can do, and this kind of comes back to coaches as well, a good coach is going to help you kind of push your edge a little bit more and yeah. is going to help reflect back to you some of the areas where you might have some blind spots mm -hmm. and kind of being vulnerable and being open is something that requires a great deal of, of EQ or emotional yeah. intelligence. It's something that most people have to constantly remind themselves mm -hmm. that this is okay. This is more than okay. This is actually required. I've seen some founders go extremely far down the path of sort of radical honesty or radical candor and taking advantage of some of the tools that are out there and some of the frameworks Brene Brown does a ton of work yeah. on vulnerability, which is oftentimes targeted towards women, yeah. but it's very applicable to men as well in the workplace. And just realizing that as a leader too, and as a founder, however you behave also trickles down. And yep. I think most founders will catch, will grasp the intellectual notion that if they are suppressing their questions and mm -hmm. their feedback, 
they are ultimately reducing their ability to take risks. And if they do that, the level below them will also behave the same way. They will mimic, they will learn from that example. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I think turning it into more of an intellectual discussion instead of using the word vulnerability, which people can sometimes equate to weakness, it's absolutely yeah. not, but there is sort of a mental, a bit of a bias around that. Yeah, right. I think the cascading effect doesn't just carry on, but it actually magnifies, you know, as you go a few levels down, suddenly people start even recruiting with those biases at the lower levels. If you don't mind, I want to go back to a smaller point among the point that you just shared is what can investors do to aid this? I think the investors have a significantly prominent role to play to allow the entrepreneur, the promoter, the founder to feel like saying, hey, it's okay, we'll figure this out. What can an investor do to create the safe space? I mean, it's actually counter to a lot of the belief system that exists, you know, I mean, especially when you watch like shows like Shark Tank and Million Pound Menu, mm-hmm. there is a certain image of an investor that's been put forth. Mm-hmm. And what yeah, we're talking actually- about is different. Yeah. And if you are a founder with a great idea, I would also caution you to be very careful about which investors you choose. Great point. Yeah. And don't just go for the brands, but really understand reputation, really find somebody who you can establish a great relationship with. Mm -hmm. And I look to my own team, I think as a great example of human investors who have a very human approach Mm -hmm. and Part of it is tied to our own ethos around investing in entrepreneurs who are solving massive challenges for financial inclusion or financial health. But that's not to say that only impact investors are going to be thoughtful and create this environment. There's very simple things that they can do. So investors should be speaking with their their founders quite regularly. When you get together, it shouldn't just be a check-in on how the business is doing. The very first thing should be a check-in. How are you doing? What's Mm -hmm. going on? What am I doing that might be getting in your way? It's just these sort of basic relationship interactions that is number one. And that's the daily sort of the expectation. The second is a more human approach to some of the bigger interactions. So whether that's the board meeting, whether that's the pitch, whether that's the any kind of engagement that you're having. One of our investors is so um, kind of famous for his closing the laptop and let's just sit and have a conversation. Wow. It's just a very different approach. And I get it. We're all busy. Numbers are important. Data is important. But that's also stuff we can review and we can have a conversation about. But if that human that you're investing in is not doing well, is not taking care of themselves, is not taking care of their team, then they can have the most impressive numbers in the world and that business is still going to fail. Mm. And I think a third piece is both to investors and as a founder and as you're looking for investors, what is the investor expectation of the time horizon for your investment. Right. Are we dealing with patient capital here where they really care about you building a long-term business Mm -hmm. and are going to be with you through the ups and the downs? Or are we talking about a a churn and burn? You know, we need to get this thing out. That's something you can identify pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there should be mutual alignment there. And hey, if you're the founder that's like, I just want to move on and sell this thing. Well, then there you go then that's the investor that you that's want to try Correct. Yeah, that's true. What we found is one of the investments we worked with, one of the portfolio companies of an investment firm that we worked with, we actually got the investors and the promoters and the entire leadership team into one room and segregated them and said, okay, now both of you are going to write, what is your dream for the firm that, for this firm? And what was the most interesting part is through that conversation was the realization both have a very similar dream for the organization. That was like 
for me, when I was looking at the entire team and the dynamics, that was an aha moment for everybody in that room. And we got them to say, okay, let's build a picture together. Mm -hmm. Take pieces of yours, take piece of that. Now we're going to give you a chart paper, cut and paste things on it. And then suddenly the ownership changed. <laughs> and I could sense the energy in the room shift. Mm -hmm. you know, and it's absolutely right. We don't do this enough, you know, where we get like people in the same room and saying, leave the reviews aside for now. Let's go back to the basics and build it back from scratch. Absolutely. We don't do that enough. And we sort of assume that what others want is also mm -hmm. what we want. And we don't really take the time necessarily to go through that exercise. That sounds really powerful. Yeah. In all honesty, this space is relatively new to me. And I feel like even talking about it, even just being a part of it, it gives me so much of energy. Because from a human capital perspective, I think the whole startup ecosystem is relatively new to look beyond just recruitment or training, etc. But like more, how do you help founders be okay with vulnerability? How do you help investors to bring a humanness into uh, some of the conversation? How do you get people to co-create rather than saying, I will give you, you deliver. I find the space very interesting to navigate. It's incredibly exciting and just ripe with opportunity. Yeah. So these are just before we close our conversation, three books that you would recommend leaders to read. Mm -hmm. So number one, I would say Work Rules by Laszlo Bach. And I think that's a wonderful read, particularly for managers and leaders to understand best practices and how to um, really inspire individuals on your team, how to be a great manager. Because as we talked about earlier in the conversation, yeah. it's the number one reason why people leave. So yep. um, there's a lot of great ideas in there. Second book would be Drive by Dan Pink. Yes. The classic. Um, you know this one, right? Um, yeah. Autonomy, mastery, and purpose, the sort of trifecta of what um, motivates people. And that is mm -hmm. one of the questions I get asked a lot. How do you motivate people? Yeah. And then the third book, it's a little bit detailed and very in-depth. It's called Thanks for the Feedback. It's okay. a book by Sheila Heen out of Harvard. She puts this new spin on feedback where it's less about how you give feedback and becoming a better receiver of feedback. Right. Becoming a better solicitor of feedback. So I like that because it's very empowering and it sort of mm -hmm. puts you in the driver's seat. Great. And two quotes that inspire you. So first quote would be the, the Einstein quote. Everybody is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it is stupid. Yeah. That's a very, very powerful one. And I like that one because it really speaks to the notion of strengths-based development. And then my next one, it's a classic Stephen Covey. And it is next to physical survival. The greatest need of a human being is psychological survival. Mm -hmm. Be understood, to be affirmed, to be validated, to be appreciated. Very much in line with Maslow's theory as well, hierarchy of needs. You know, once you cross physical, you go into the psychological part. It's and, really and fundamental stuff. It is. That's another thing. Somehow it's easy for us to criticize something for whatever it might be, but it's not the same as how do I affirm somebody or how do I make an intentional effort to find something about somebody to just affirm them. Yeah. And, you know, contrary to a lot of misconceptions, giving somebody positive feedback doesn't justify poor performance. Uh, make somebody comfortable. It actually makes them want to do better. <laughs> it makes them want to be successful. And I think there's the ratio of it's like six to one, where for every one piece of negative feedback, in order to get back to equilibrium, you must provide six pieces of positive feedback. That's really hard to do. We don't, we don't do that. We don't think like that because yeah. we're in this mindset of just kind of, oh, improve, 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 instead of stopping. Yeah. 
And I think in pandemic times, especially, you realize, wow, there's so much that I appreciate and I don't always stop and, and say it. And yep. how hard would it be if you spent the first five minutes of every morning that you come into work appreciating somebody on your team? Just make it yeah. a simple practice. And it's, it's nourishing for you as well as the giver. It feels good when you appreciate somebody. Yeah, I agree. So I'm going to split the last question into two parts, right? Okay. So one question that founders or aspiring founders should be asking themselves. Okay. Can I sort of cheat with this answer and give you three questions? Sure. <laughs> and because they all sort of tie into one. And this comes from one of our fabulous coaching groups that we work with, Jerry Colonna of Reboot. Mm -hmm. And he says, there's the three ninja questions. One, what am I not saying that needs to be said? Two, what am I saying but is not being heard? And three, what is being said that I'm not hearing? Why do you pick these questions? What do these questions appeal to you? I love these questions. And the reason I love them is they go so much deeper beneath the surface. Mm -hmm. And so many of the problems in companies, in relationships, in hierarchies happen because people are not hearing each other. They're not understanding each other. They're missing cues. They're missing opportunities. Mm -hmm. And we don't know how to get to the bottom of that without asking directly, in which case we will not get an honest answer. Yeah. So we have to come up with new ways to challenge ourselves to really look about, look what's underneath the surface. Yeah. What's between the lines that we're not reading. Mm-hmm. What is one question that investors should be asking themselves? Yes. How am I getting in my founder's way? Oh, wow. That's interesting. Why do you say that? Why did you choose this question? Do you feel like it happens quite frequently? I say this because I think this question applies to anyone in a position of power whether you are a CEO, whether you are an investor, we're coming from a place of being helpful, of wanting to be helpful, of having good intentions. Yeah. And so when we tell our founder, jump, the founder says, how high? Yeah. We're saying jump because we think that's really a good thing. Mm -hmm. And the founder is not going to question, why did you ask me to jump? And so if we don't take a moment and ask specifically, what am I doing that's getting in your way? Yeah. Then the founder doesn't have the opportunity to say, you know, I'm just wondering why you keep asking me to jump. Or when you mm -hmm. ask me to jump, it pulls me in this other direction. Yeah. So it creates an opening that is much more specific than saying, oh, can you give me some feedback? Mm -hmm. I really like this question because personally it speaks to me because just like I think a few months ago, one of the things that I felt very strongly is that I wanted to change the way I lead mm -hmm. is to reverse the pyramid. At the moment, like I, it's this way, right? I'm on top with like these departments underneath and the challenge is to swap it is, and, and I think this is a question I've not actively asked myself is what can I do to stop holding somebody back? Like, you know, if I have to rephrase it, mm -hmm. thank you for that. Cause I think it's something that I, I haven't thought actively about, like I've always thought about the other side, what can I do to help the other person move forward? But there's also the subconscious biases where like I could be holding somebody back without even knowing, without even being aware because I haven't spent time thinking about it. Thank you. So Lisa, that brings us to the end of our conversation. And I want to just say thank you, thank you, thank you so much for sharing your insights. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I genuinely did not realize that we've had this conversation for over 15 minutes. This is something very typical of even some of our past conversations. It has flown quite a bit. There's so much that 
I learn from you every time we have had a conversation. So thank you for that. It's absolutely my pleasure. There's so much to talk about and it's so much fun. Really. It is. It is. Yes. And to our listeners, thank you again for tuning in. And I hope that you got some insights about from if you're a founder, I hope you got some insights about what you need to be focusing on, what you shouldn't be focusing on. And I if you're an investor, I hope you've got to understand that it's okay to let your founders be a little more vulnerable. And until next time, stay safe and have a great day.